0: Book one, chapter three, of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, a Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book one, Alison Device, chapter three, the Asherton's. Between Sir Ralph Asherton of the Abbey and the inhabitants of Whaley, many of whom were his tenants, he being joint Lord of the Manor with John Bradill of Portfield, the best possible feeling subsisted, for though somewhat austere in manner and tinctured with Puritanism, the worthy knight was sufficiently shrewd, or more correctly speaking sufficiently liberal-minded, to be tolerant of the opinions of others, and being moreover sincere in his own religious views, no man would call him in question for them besides which he was very hospitable to his friends, very bountiful to the poor, a good landlord, and a humane man. His very austerity of manner, tempered by stately courtesy, added to the respect he inspired, especially as he could now and then relax into gaiety, and when he did so his smile was accounted singularly sweet. But in general he was grave and formal, stiff in attire and stiff in gait, cold and punctilious in manner, precise in speech, and exacting in due respect from both high and low, which was seldom, if ever, refused him. Among Sir Ralph's other good qualities, for such it was esteemed by his friends and retainers, and they were, of course, the best judges, was a strong love of the chase, and perhaps he indulged a little too freely in the sports of the field for a gentleman of a character so staid and decorous, but his popularity was far from being diminished by the circumstance, neither did he suffer the rude and boisterous companionship into which he was brought by indulgence in this his favourite pursuit in any way to affect him though still young sir ralph was prematurely grey and this combined with the sad severity of his aspect gave him the air of one considerably past the middle term of life though this appearance was contradicted again by the youthful fire of his eagle eye his features were handsome and strongly marked and he wore a pointed beard and moustaches with a shaved cheek sir ralph assheton had married twice his first wife being a daughter of sir james beltingham of Levens in northumberland by whom he had two children while his second choice fell upon Eleanor shuttleworth the lovely and well-endowed heiress of gawthorpe to whom he had been recently united in his attire even when habited for the chase or a merry-making like the present, the Knight of Whaley affected a sombre colour and ordinarily wore a quilted doublet of black silk, immense trunk hose of the same material stiffened with whalebone, puffed out well-wadded sleeves, falling bands for he eschewed the ruff as savouring of vanity, boots of black flexible leather ascending to the hose, and armed with spurs with gigantic rowels. A round-crowned, small-brimmed black hat, with an ostrich-feather, placed in the side and hanging over the top, a long rapier on his hip, and a dagger in his girdle. This buckram attire, it will be easily conceived, contributed no little to the natural stiffness of his tall, thin figure. Sir Ralph Asherton was great-grandson of Richard Asherton, who flourished in the time of Abbot Paslew and who, in conjunction with John Braddill, fourteen years after the unfortunate prelate's attainder and the dissolution of the monastery, had purchased the abbey and domains of Whaley from the crown, subsequently to which a division of the property, so granted, took place between them. The abbey, and part of the manor falling to the share of Richard Asherton, whose descendants had now for three generations made it their residence, thus the whole of Whaley belonged to the families of Asherton and Bradill, which had intermarried, the latter, as has been stated, dwelling at Portfield, a fine old seat in the neighbourhood. A very different person from Sir Ralph was his cousin, Nicholas Asherton of Downham, who, except as regards his Puritanism, might be considered a type of the Lancashire squire of the day. A precision in religious notions, and constant in attendance at church and lecture, he put no sort of restraint upon himself but mixed up fox-hunting, otter-hunting, shooting at the mark, and perhaps shooting with the longbow, foot-racing, horse-racing, and in fact every other kind of country diversion, not forgetting tippling, cards, and dicing, with daily devotion, discourses, and psalm-singing, in the oddest way imaginable. A thorough sportsman was Squire Nicholas Asherton, well versed in the arts and mysteries of hawking and hunting, Not a man in the county could ride harder, hunt deer, unkennel fox, unearth badger, or spear-otter, better than he. And then, as to tippling, he would sit you a whole afternoon at the alehouse and be the merriest man there, and drink about with every farmer present. And if the parson chanced to be out of hearing, he would never make a mouth at a round oath, nor choose a second expression when the first would serve his turn. Then, who so constant at church or lecture as Squire Nicholas?' though he did snore sometimes during the long sermons of his cousin the rector of middleton a great man was he at all weddings christenings churchings and funerals and never neglected his bottle at these ceremonies nor any sport indoors or out of doors meanwhile in short such a roistering puritan was never known a good-looking young man was the squire of downham possessed of a very athletic frame and a most vigorous constitution which helped him, together with the prodigious exercise he took, through any excess. He had a sanguine complexion, with a broad, good-natured visage, which he could lengthen at will, in a surprising manner. His hair was cropped close to his head, and the razor did daily duty over his cheek and chin, giving him the round-head look, some years later characteristic of the Puritanical party. Nicholas had taken to wife Dorothy, daughter of Richard Greenacres of Worston and was most fortunate in his choice, which is more than can be said for his lady, for I cannot uphold the squire as a model of conjugal fidelity. Report affirmed that he loved more than one pretty girl under the rose. Squire Nicholas was not particular as to the quality or make of his clothes, providing they wore well, and protected him against the weather, and was generally to be seen in doublet and hose of stout fustian, which had seen some service." with a broad-heaved hat, originally green, but of late bleached to a much lighter colour. But he was clad on this particular occasion in ash-coloured habiliments, fresh from the tailor's hands, with buff boots drawn up to the knee, and a new round hat from York with a green feather in it. His legs were slightly embowed, and he bore himself like a man rarely out of the saddle. Downham the residence of the squire was a fine old house very charmingly situated to the north of pendle hill of which it commanded a magnificent view and a few miles from the grounds about it were well wooded and beautifully broken and diversified watered by the ribble an opening upon the lovely and extensive valley deriving its name from that stream the house was in good order and well maintained and the stables plentifully furnished with horses while the hall was adorned with various trophies and implements of the chase but as i propose paying its owner a visit i shall defer any further description of the place till an opportunity arrives for examining it in detail a third cousin of sir ralph's though in the second degree likewise present on the may-day in question was the reverend abadius Asherton, rector of middleton a very worthy man who though differing from his kinsman upon some religious points and not altogether approving of the conduct of one of them, was on good terms with both. The rector of Middleton was portly and middle-aged, fond of ease and reading, and by no means indifferent to the good things of life. He was unmarried, and passed much of his time at Middleton Hall, the seat of his near relative Sir Richard Asherton, to whose family he was greatly attached, and whose residence closely adjoined the rectory. A fourth cousin also present was young Richard Asherton of Middleton, eldest son and heir of the owner of that estate. Possessed of all the good qualities largely distributed among his kinsmen, with none of their drawbacks, this young man was as tolerant and bountiful as Sir Ralph, without his austerity and sectarianism, as keen a sportsman, and as bold a rider as Nicholas, without his propensities to excess, as studious at times, and as well-read as Abdias, without his laziness and self-indulgence, and as courtly and well-bred as his father, Sir Richard, who was esteemed one of the most perfect gentlemen in the county, without his haughtiness. Then he was the handsomest of his race, though the Ashertons were accounted the handsomest family in Lancashire, and no one minded yielding the palm to young Richard, even if it could be contested, he was so modest and unassuming. At this time Richard Asherton was about two-and-twenty, tall, gracefully and slightly formed but possessed of such remarkable vigour that even his cousin nicholas could scarcely compete with him in athletic exercises his features were fine and regular with an almost phrygian precision of outline his hair was of a dark brown and fell in clustering curls over his brown neck and his complexion was fresh and blooming and set off by a slight beard and moustache carefully trimmed and pointed His dress consisted of a dark green doublet, with wide velvet hose, embroidered and fringed, descending nearly to the knee, where they were tied with points and ribbons, met by dark stockings, and terminated by red velvet shoes with roses in them. A white feather adorned his black broad-leaved hat, and he had a rapier by his side. Amongst Sir Ralph Asherton's guests were Richard Greenacres of Worston, Nicholas Asherton's father-in-law. Richard Sherborne of Dunnow, near Sladeburn, who had married Dorothy, Nicholas's sister, Mistress Robinson, of Raydale House, aunt to the knight and the squire, and two of her sons, both stout youths, with John Braddell and his wife of Portfield. Besides these there was Master Roger Nowell, a Justice of the Peace in the county, and a very active and busy one, too, who had been invited for an especial purpose to be explained hereafter head of an ancient Lancashire family, residing at Reed, a fine old hall, some distance from Whaley, Roger Nowell, though a worthy, well-meaning man, dealt hard measure from the bench, and seldom tempered justice with mercy. He was sharp-featured, dry, and sarcastic, and being adverse to country sports, his presence on the occasion was the only thing likely to impose restraint on the revellers. Other guests there were, but none of any particular note." the ladies of the party consisted of lady Asherton, mistress nicholas Asherton of downham dorothy Asherton of middleton sister to richard a lovely girl of eighteen with light fleecy hair summer blue eyes and a complexion of exquisite purity mistress sherborne of Dunno, mistress robinson of raydale and mistress Bradell of portfield before mentioned together with the wives and daughters of some others of the neighbouring gentry most noticeable amongst whom was Mistress Alice Nutter, of Rough Lee in Pendle Forest, a widow lady, and a relative of the Asherton family. Mistress Nutter might be a year or two turned of forty, but she still retained a very fine figure, and much beauty of feature, though of a cold and disagreeable cast. She was dressed in mourning, though her husband had been dead several years, and her rich dark habiliments well became her pale complexion and raven hair. A proud, poor gentleman was Richard Nutter, her late husband, and, his scanty means, not enabling him to keep up as large an establishment as he desired, or to be as hospitable as his nature prompted, his temper became soured, and he visited his ill-humours upon his wife, who, devotedly attached to him, to all outward appearances at least, never resented his ill-treatment. All at once, and without any previous symptoms of ailment or apparent cause, unless it might be over-fatigue in hunting the day before, Richard Nutter was seized with a strange and violent illness, which, after three or four days of acute suffering, brought him to the grave. During his illness he was constantly and zealously tended by his wife, but he displayed great aversion to her, declaring himself bewitched, and that an old woman was ever in the corner of his room mumbling wicked enchantments against him. But as no such old woman could be seen, these assertions were treated as delirious ravings. They were not, however, forgotten after his death, and some people said that he had certainly been bewitched, and that a waxen image made in his likeness, and stuck full of pins, had been picked up in his chamber by Mistress Alice, and cast into the fire, and as soon as it melted he had expired." Such tales only obtained credence with the common folk. But as Pendle Forest was a sort of weird region, many reputed witches dwelling in it, they were the more readily believed, even by those who acquitted Mistress Nutter of all share in the dark transaction. Mistress Nutter gave the best proof that she respected her husband's memory by not marrying again, and she continued to lead a very secluded life at Rough Lee, a lonesome house in the heart of the forest. She lived quite by herself, for she had no children her only daughter having perished somewhat strangely when quite an infant though a relative of the Asherton's, she kept up a little intimacy with them and it was a matter of surprise to all that she had been drawn from her seclusion to attend the present revel her motive however in visiting the abbey was to obtain the assistance of sir ralph assheton in settling a dispute between her and roger nowell relative to the boundary line of part of their properties which came together and this was the reason why the magistrate had been invited to Whaley. After hearing both sides of the question, and examining plans of the estates, which he knew to be accurate, Sir Ralph, who had been appointed umpire, pronounced a decision in favour of Roger Nowell. But Mistress Nutter, refusing to abide by it, the settlement of the matter was postponed till the day but one following between which time the landmarks were to be investigated by a certain little lawyer named Potts, who attended on behalf of Roger Nowell, together with Nicholas and Richard Asherton on behalf of Mistress Nutter. Upon their evidence it was agreed by both parties that Sir Ralph should pronounce a final decision, to be accepted by them, and to that effect they signed an agreement. The three persons appointed to the investigation settled to start for Ruffley early on the following morning. A word as to Master Thomas Potts. This worthy was an attorney from London, who had officiated as clerk of the court of the Assizes at Lancaster, where his quickness had so much pleased Roger Nowell that he sent for him to read, to manage this particular business. A sharp-witted fellow was Potts, and versed in all the quirks and tricks of a very subtle profession, not over-scrupulous, provided a client would pay well, prepared to resort to any expedient to gain his object, and quite conversant enough with both practice and precedent to keep himself straight. A bustling, consequential little personage was he, moreover, very fond of delivering an opinion, even when unasked, and of a meddling make-mischief turn, constantly setting men by the ears. A suit of rusty black, a parchment-coloured skin, small, weazen features, a turnip nose, scant eyebrows, and a great yellow forehead constituted his external man. He partook of the hospitality at the Abbey, but had his quarters at the Dragon. He it was who counselled Roger Nowell to abide by the decision of Sir Ralph, confidently assuring him that he must carry his point. This dispute was not, however, the only one the knight had to adjust, or in which Master Potts was concerned. A claim had been recently made by a certain Sir Thomas Metcalfe of Nape in Wensleydale, near Bainbridge, to the house and manor of Raydale, belonging to his neighbour John Robinson, whose lady, as has been shown, was a relative of the Ashertons. Robinson himself had gone to London to obtain advice on the subject, while Sir Thomas Metcalfe, who was a man of violent disposition, had threatened to take forcible possession of Raydale, if it were not delivered to him without delay, and to eject the Robinson family. Having consulted Potts, however, on the subject, whom he had met at Reed, the latter strongly dissuaded him from the course— and recommended him to call to his aid the strong arm of the law. But this he rejected, though he ultimately agreed to refer the matter to Sir Ralph Asherton, and for this purpose he had come over to Whaley, and was at present a guest at the vicarage. Thus it will be seen that Sir Ralph Asherton had his hands full, while the little London lawyer, Master Potts, was tolerably well occupied. Besides Sir Thomas Metcalfe, Sir Richard Molyneux and Mr. Parker of Browsholm were guests of Dr. Ormerod at the vicarage. Such was the large company assembled to witness the May-day revels at Whaley, and if harmonious feelings did not exist among all of them, little outward manifestation was made of enmity. The dresses and appointments of the pageant, having been provided by Sir Ralph Asherton, who, Puritan as he was, encouraged all harmless country pastimes, It was deemed necessary to pay him every respect, even if no other feeling would have prompted the attention, and therefore the troop had stopped on seeing him and his guests issue from the abbey gate. At pretty nearly the same time Dr Ormerod and his party came from the vicarage towards the green. No order of march was observed, but Sir Ralph and his lady, with two of his children by the former marriage, walked first. Then came some of the other ladies, with the rector of Middleton, John Bradill, and the two sons of Mistress Robinson. Next came Mistress Nutter, Roger Nowell, and Potts, walking after her, eyeing her maliciously as her proud figure swept on before them. Even if she saw their looks or overheard their jeers, she did not deign to notice them. Lastly came young Richard Asherton of Middleton, and Squire Nicholas, both in high spirits, and laughing and chatting together. "'A brave day for the Morris-dancers, Cousin Dick,' observed Nicholas Asherton, as they approached the green, and plenty of folk to witness the sport. "'Half of my lads from Downham are here, and I see a good many of your Middleton chaps among them.' "'How are you, Farmer Tetlow?' he added, to a stout, hale-looking man, with a blooming countrywoman by his side. "'Brought your pretty young wife to the rush-bearing, I see.' Yea, Squire,' rejoined the farmer, and mightily pleased her be we it too.' "'Happy to hear it, Master Tetlow,' replied Nicholas. "'She'll be better pleased before the day's over. I'll warrant her. I'll dance around round with her myself in the hall at night.' There now, Meg, why don't you make squire a curtsy wench and dunk him?' said Tetlow, nudging his pretty wife, who had turned away rather embarrassed by the free gaze of the squire. Nicholas, however, did not wait for the curtsy, but went away laughing, to overtake Richard Asherton, who had walked on. "'Ah, here's Frank Garside,' he continued, espying another rustic acquaintance. Hello, Frank. I'll come over one day next week and try for a fox in Easington Woods. We missed the last, you know. "'Tom Brockholzer, are you here? Just ridden over from Sladeburn, eh? "'When's that shooting-match at the Bodkin to come off, eh? "'Mind it's to be at 22 Roads distance. "'Ride over to Downham on Thursday next, Tom. We'll have a foot-race, and I'll show you good sport.' and at night we'll have a lusty drinking-bout at the alehouse. On Friday we'll take out the great nets, and try for salmon in the ribble. I took some fish on Monday, one salmon of ten pounds weight, the largest I've got the whole season, I brought it with me to-day to the abbey. There's an otter in the river, and I won't hunt him till you come, Tom. I shall see you on Thursday, eh?' Receiving an answer in the affirmative, Squire Nicholas walked on, nodding right and left, jesting with the farmers, and ogling their pretty wives and daughters. Yeah, I tell you what, cousin Dick, he said, calling after Richard Asherton, who had got in advance of him. I'll match my dun nag against your grey gelding for twenty pieces, but I reach the boundary line of roughly lands before you to morrow. What you won't have it? You know I shall beat you, ha <laughs> Well, we'll try the speed of the two tits the first day we hunt the stag in Boland Forest. What's oh, my life!' he cried, suddenly altering his deportment and lengthening his visage. "'If there isn't our parson here! Stay with me, Cousin Dick, stay with me!' "'Give you good day, worthy Mr. Dewhurst,' he added, taking off his hat to the Divine, who respectfully returned his salutation. "'I did not look to see your reverence here taking part in these vanities and idle sports. "'I propose to call on you on Saturday. Pass an hour in serious discourse.' "'I would call to-morrow, but I have to ride over to Pendle on business.' Tarry a moment for me, I pray, you, good cousin Richard. "'I fear you, reverend, sir, that you will see much here that will scandalise you. "'Much lightness and indecorum. "'Pleasant afar would we'll see a large congregation of the elders "'flocking together to a godly meeting than crowds assembled for such a profane purpose. "'Another moment, Richard. "'My cousin is a young man, Mr. Dewhurst, and wishes to join the revel.' but we must make allowances worthy and reverend sir until the world shall improve an excellent discourse you gave us good ear on sunday eight romans twelve and thirteen verses it is graven upon my memory but i have made a note of it in my diary i come to you cousin i come i pray you walk on to the abbey good mr dewhurst where you will be right welcome and call for any refreshment you may desire a glass of good sack and a slice of venison pasty on which we have just dined there's some famous old ale which i would commend to you but that i know you care not any more than myself for creature comforts farewell reverend sir i will join you ere long for these scenes have little attraction for me but i must take care that my young cousin falleth not into harm and as the divine took his way to the abbey he added laughingly to richard oh, good riddance dick i would not have the old fellow play the spy upon us ah giles mercer he added stopping again and jeff rushton well met lads what are you come to the wake i shall be at john law's in the evening and we'll have a glass together john brews sack rarely and spare not the eggs but you will be at the dancing at that be squire said one of the farmers curse the dancing cried nicholas oh. i hope the parson didn't hear me he added turning round quickly well well i'll come down when the dancing's over and we'll make a night of it and he ran on to overtake Richard Asherton. By this time the respective parties from the Abbey and the Vicarage having united, they walked on together. Sir Ralph Asherton, after courteously exchanging salutations with Dr. ormerod's guests, still keeping a little in advance of the company. Sir Thomas Metcalfe comported himself with more than his wonted haughtiness, and bowed so superciliously to Mistress Robinson that her two sons glanced angrily at each other as if in doubt that they should not instantly resent the affront. Observing this, as well as what had previously taken place, Nicholas Asherton stepped quickly up to them and said, "'Keep quiet, lads. Leave this dunghill cock to me, and I'll lower his crest.' With this he pushed forward, and, elbowing Sir Thomas rudely out of the way, turned round, and, instead of apologising, eyed him coolly and contemptuously from head to foot. "'Are you drunk, sir, that you forget your manners?' asked sir thomas laying his hand upon his sword not so drunk that i know how to conduct myself like a gentleman sir thomas rejoined nicholas which is more than can be said of a certain person of my acquaintance who for aught i know has only taken his morning pint you wish to pick a quarrel with me master nicholas assheton i perceive said sir thomas stepping up close to him and i will not disappoint you you shall render me good reason for this affront before i leave Whaley when and where you please sir thomas rejoined nicholas laughing at any hour and any weapon i'm your man at this moment master potts who had scented a quarrel afar and who would have liked it well enough if its prosecution had not run counter to his own interests quitted roger nowell and ran back to metcalfe and plucking him by the sleeve said in a low voice this is not the way to obtain quiet possession of raydale house sir thomas master nicholas Asherton, he added, turning to him, "'I must entreat you, my good sir, to be moderate. Gentlemen, both, I caution you that I have my eye upon you. You well know there is a magistrate here, my singular good friend and honoured client, Master Roger Nowell, and if you pursue this quarrel further, I shall hold it my duty to have you bound over by that worthy gentleman in sufficient security to keep the peace towards our sovereign lord, the King, and all his lieges, and particularly towards each other. You understand me, gentlemen?' "'Perfectly,' replied Nicholas. "'I drink at John Law's to-night, Sir Thomas.' So saying, he walked away. Metcalfe would have followed him, but was withheld by Potts. "'Let him go, Sir Thomas,' said the little man of Law. "'Let him go. Once master of Raydale, you can do as you please. Leave the settlement of the matter to me. I'll just whisper a word in Sir Ralph Asherton's ear, and you'll hear no more of it.' "'Fire and fury!' growled sir thomas i like not this mode of settling a quarrel and unless this hot-headed psalm singing puritan apologizes i shall assuredly cut his throat or he yours good sir thomas rejoined potts better sit in raydale hall than lie in the abbey vaults well we'll talk the matter over master potts replied the knight A nice morning's work i've made of it mused nicholas as he walked along here I have a dance with the farmer's pretty wife, a discourse with the parson, a drinking bout with a couple of clowns, and a duello with a blustering knight on my hands. Quite enough of my conscience. But I must get through it the best way I can. And now, hey for the maypole and the Morris-Dancers. Nicholas just got up in time to witness the presentation of the May-Queen to Sir Ralph Asherton and his lady and, like every one else, he was greatly struck by her extreme beauty and natural grace. The little ceremony was thus conducted. When the company from the abbey drew near the troop of revellers, the usher, taking Alison's hand in the tips of his fingers as before, strutted forward with her to Sir Ralph and his lady, and, falling upon one knee before them, said, "'A most worshipful and honoured knight, and you his lovely dame!' and you the tender and cherished olive-branches growing round about their tables, I hereby crave your gracious permission to present unto your honours our chosen Queen of May.' Somewhat fluttered by the presentation, Alison yet maintained sufficient composure to bend gracefully before Lady Asherton, and say in a very sweet voice, i fear your ladyship will think the choice of the village hath fallen ill in alighting upon me and indeed i feel myself altogether unworthy the distinction nevertheless i will endeavour to discharge the office fittingly and therefore pray you fair lady and the worshipful knight your husband together with your beauteous children and the gentles all by whom you are surrounded to grace our little festival with your presence "'hoping you may find as much pleasure in the sight "'as we shall do in offering it to you.' "'A fair maid, and modest as she is fair,' "'observed Sir Ralph, with a condescending smile. "'In sooth she is,' replied Lady Asherton, "'raising her kindly, and saying as she did so, "'Nay, you must not kneel to us, sweet maid. "'You are Queen of the May, and it is for us to show respect to you "'during your day of sovereignty. "'Your wishes are commands.' And, in behalf of my husband, my children, and our guests, I answer that we will gladly attend your revels on the green. Well said, Darel, observed Sir Ralph. We should be churlish indeed were we to refuse the bidding of so lovely a queen. Nay, you have called the roses in earnest to her cheek now, Sir Ralph observed Lady Asherton, smiling, lead on, fair queen, she continued, and tell your companions to begin their sport when they please. Only remember this, that we shall hope to see all your gay troop this evening at the Abbey to a merry dance. "'Where I will strive to find Her Majesty a suitable partner,' added Sir Ralph. stay she shall make her choice now as a royal personage should, for you know, Nell, a Queen ever chooseth her partner, whether it be for the throne or for the brawl. How say you, fair one, shall it be either of our young cousins, Joe or Will Robinson of Raydale?' "'or our cousin who still thinketh himself young, "'Squire Nicholas of Downham.' "'Ay, let it be me, I implore you, fair Queen,' interposed Nicholas. "'He is engaged already,' observed Richard Asherton coming forward. "'I heard him ask pretty Mistress Tetlow, the farmer's wife, "'to dance with him this evening at the Abbey.' A loud laugh from those around followed this piece of information, but Nicholas was in no wise disconcerted. "'Dick would have her choose him, and that's why he interferes with me,' he observed. "'How say you, fair Queen? Shall it be our hopeful cousin? I will answer for him that he danceth the Coranto and La Volta indifferently well.' On hearing Richard Asherton's voice, all the colour had forsaken Alison's cheeks, but at this direct appeal to her by Nicholas, it returned with additional force, and the change did not escape the quick eye of Lady Asherton. "'You perplex her cousin Nicholas,' she said. "'Not a whit, Eleanor,' answered the squire. "'But if she like not Dick Asherton, there is another Dick, Dick Sherborne of Sladeburn, or our cousin Jack Bradhill, Or if she prefer an older and discreeter man, there is Father Greenacres of Worston, or Master Roger Nowell of Reed, plenty of choice.' "'Nay, if I must choose a partner, it shall be a young one,' said Alison. "'Right, fair Queen, right,' cried Nicholas, laughing. "'Ever choose a young man if you can. Who shall it be?' "'You have named him yourself, sir,' replied Alison, in a voice which she endeavoured to keep firm, but which, in spite of all her efforts, sounded tremulously, "Uh, "'Master Richard Asherton." "'Next to choosing me, you could not have chosen better,' observed Nicholas, approvingly. "'Dicklad, I congratulate thee.' "'I congratulate myself.' replied the young man fair queen he added advancing highly flattered as i am by your choice and shall so demean myself i trust as to prove myself worthy of it before i go i would beg a boon from you that flower this pink cried alizon it is yours fair sir young Asherton took the flower and took the hand that offered it at the same time and pressed the latter to his lips while lady Asherton who had been made a little uneasy by Alison's apparent emotion, and who with true feminine tact immediately detected its cause, called out, "'Now, forward, forward to the Maypole! We have interrupted the revel too long!' Upon this the May Queen stepped blushingly back with the usher, who, with his white wand in hand, had stood bolt upright behind her, immensely delighted with the scene in which his pupil, for Alison had been tutored by him for the occasion, had taken part. Sir Ralph then clapped his hands loudly, and at this signal the tabor and pipe struck up. The fool and the hobby-horse, who, though idle all the time, had indulged in a little quiet fun with the rustics, recommenced their gambols. The morris-dancers their lively dance, and the whole train moved towards the maypole, followed by the rush-cart, with all its bells jingling and all its garlands waving. As to Alison, her brain was in a whirl, and her bosom heaved so quickly that she thought she would faint. To think that the choice of a partner in the dance at the Abbey had been offered her, and that she should venture to choose Master Richard Asherton. She could scarcely credit her own temerity, and then to think that she should give him a flower, and, more than all, that he should kiss her hand in return for it. She felt the tingling pressure of his lips upon her finger still, and her little heart palpitated strangely. As she approached the maypole, and the troop again halted for a few minutes, she saw her brother James holding little Jennet by the hand, standing in the front line to look at her. "'Oh, how glad I am to see you here, Jennet!' she cried. "'And I am right glad to see you, Alison,' replied the little girl. "'Jem has told me what a grand partner you are to have this e'en,' and she added, with playful malice, "'It was wrong when she said the Queen would choose Master Richard, "'Hush, Jennet, not a word more,' interrupted Alison, blushing. "'Oh, I don't mean to vex you, I'm sure,' replied Jennet. "'I've got a present for ye, "'A present for me, Jennet?' cried Alison. "'What is it?' "'A beautiful white dove,' replied the little girl. "'A white dove? Where did you get it? Let me see it,' cried Alison, in a breath. "'Here it is,' replied Jennet, opening her kirtle. "'A beautiful bird indeed!' cried Alison. "'Take care of it for me till I come home.' "'Which will be till late, I fancy?' rejoined Jennet roguishly. "'Ah!' she added, uttering a cry. The latter exclamation was occasioned by the sudden flight of the dove, which, escaping from her hold, soared aloft. Jennet followed the course of its silver wings as they cleaved the blue sky and then all at once saw a large hawk, which apparently had been hovering above, swoop down upon it and bear it off. Some white feathers fell down near the little girl, and she picked up one of them and put it in her breast. "'Poor bird!' exclaimed the May Queen. "'Ah, poor bird!' echoed Jennet tearfully. "'Ah, you don't know Alison?' "'Well, there's no yours whimpering about a dove,' observed Jem gruffly. I'll bring ye another. First time I go to town, there's nae no another bird like that. Sobbed the little girl. Show that cruel hawk for me, Jem, win i Ah, con a wench, when it's flown away. He replied. But I'll rob a hawk's nest for ye if that'll do as well. Ye dunna understand me, Jem," replied the child sadly. At this moment. The music, which had ceased while some arrangements were made, commenced a very lively tune, known as Round About the Maypole, and Robin Hood, taking the May Queen's hand, led her towards the pole, and placing her near it, the whole of her attendants took hands, and while a second circle was formed by the Morris dancers, and both began to wheel rapidly round her, the music momently increasing in spirit and quickness an irresistible desire to join in the measure seized some of the lads and lasses around and they likewise took hands and presently a third and still wider circle was formed wheeling gaily around the other two other dances were formed here and there and presently the whole green was in movement if you come off hat all to-night dick i shall be surprised observed nicholas who, with his young relative, had approached as near the maypole as the three rounds of dancers would allow them. Richard Asherton made no reply, but glanced at the pink which he had placed in his doublet. "'Who is the may-queen?' inquired Sir Thomas Metcalfe, who had likewise drawn near. Of a tall man, holding a little girl by the hand. "'Alison, daughter of Elizabeth Device, and my sister,' replied James Device, gruffly. "'Humph!' muttered Sir Thomas. "'She's a well-looking lass, and she dwells here, in feller. he added. "'Who oh, dwells he Whaley?' responded Jem, sullenly. "'I can easily find her abode,' muttered the knight, walking away. "'What was it Sir Thomas said to you, Jem?' inquired Nicholas, who had watched the knight's gestures coming up. Jem related what had passed between them. Oh, "'What the devil does he want with her?' cried Nicholas. No good, I'm sure, but I'll spoil his sport.' "'Say, but the word's quiet, and I'll break every bone in his body,' remarked Jem. "'No, no, Jem,' replied Nicholas. "'Take care of your pretty sister, and I'll take care of him.' At this juncture, Sir Thomas, who, in spite of the efforts of the Pacific Master Potts to tranquillise him, had been burning with wrath at the affront he had received from Nicholas, came up to Richard Asherton and, noticing the pink in his bosom, snatched it away suddenly. "'I want a flower,' he said, smelling at it. "'Instantly restore it, Sir Thomas,' cried Richard Asherton, pale with rage. "Or "'What will you do, young sir?' rejoined the knight tauntingly, and plucking the flower in pieces. "'You can get another from the fair nymph who gave you this.' Further speech was not allowed the knight for he received a violent blow on the chest from the hand of Richard Asherton, which sent him reeling backwards, and would have felled him to the ground if he had not been caught by some of the bystanders. The moment he recovered, Sir Thomas drew his sword, and furiously assaulted young Asherton, who stood ready for him, and after the exchange of a few passes, for none of the bystanders dared to interfere, sent his sword whirling over their head through the air. "'Bravo, Dick!' cried Nicholas, stepping up and clapping his cousin on the back. "'You have read him a good lesson, and taught him that he cannot always insult folks with impunity.' (laughs) And he laughed loudly at the discomfited knight. "'He is an insolent coward,' cried Richard Asherton. "'Give him his sword, and let him come on again.' "'No, no,' said Nicholas. "'He has had enough this time, and if he has not, he must settle an account with me. Put up your blade, lad.' Or I'll be revenged upon you both,' said Sir Thomas, taking his sword, which had been brought him by a bystander, and stalking away. "'You leave us in mortal dread, doughty knight!' cried Nicholas, shouting after him derisively. (laughs) Richard Asherton's attention was, however, turned in a different direction, for the music suddenly ceasing, and the dancers stopping, he learnt that the May Queen had fainted, and presently afterwards the crowd opened to give passage to robin hood who bore her inanimate form in his arms chapter three